And I said, I'm not going to get discouraged because I can see that a centrist position, this is a hard one, a centrist position, that at this point in the way the world game is, is a falling, either everybody goes or nobody goes. You can't polarize it again. You can't have an us and them. It's got to keep embracing people, embracing people. And, um, and I saw that that would demand a much more centrism than I was used to or wanted from a democratic president and so on. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, your host. And you, you are the Ramdas community. People with your hearts, minds, and compasses pointed towards consciousness. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we dive into episode 228. It was recorded in 1994 in San Rafael, California, and it's from a retreat called Tuning to the Wisdom Heart. This is another really great podcast. A lot of it is a question and response session. And in it, Ramdas really highlights and embraces this idea of paradox, the both and approach rather than the either or that many of us end up sort of reverting to a lot of the time. And it feels especially um, juicy and poignant for today's world especially when he's talking about polarization and fundamentalism. And I love that our archivalists found this talk because so often we get questions about the social justice movement in today's world. And I always wish that Ramdas was here to directly speak to people about it. And in this podcast, he sort of does. He talks about how, yes, we need to embrace unity consciousness, the all oneness, and we also still honor our diversity. We do both, both and. And our job is not to tell other people what to do, but to work on ourselves. We don't use the all one trip against other people's experiences or ask them to be different. We simply work on our own attachment and aversions. Um, he also talks about one of my all-time favorite books in the world. It's Aldous Huxley's fictional work called Island. Um, I even named my integration program Moksha Medicine in honor of this work. Um, and here again, Ramdas is embracing paradox, this importance of becoming somebody, of touching our inner world and our feelings, even as we embrace our expanded consciousness. And finally, he talks about addiction. And again, it's this both and world. Yes, Groups like Alcoholic Anonymous can help us normalize our experience, understand our habits and our attachments, and find community that understands and create new habits. They are necessary and helpful. And it is important to remember that we are so much more than our addictions, that our identity is not equivalent to our biography. And he ends this lecture suggesting in some way that we can sort of meditate away addiction. And maybe that's true for some people. Yes, you know, addictions are just really intense habits of being and habits of thought. 
But earlier in this talk, he also talks about how he needed both meditation and psychotherapy to, to address some of his neuroses. Um, and as someone who has had a spiritual practice for well over 20 years um, and also wrestled intensely with a process addiction. I had uh, an eating disorder that started when I was 13 and lasted for about 17 years. Um, I know that I had that my deep spiritual practice did not touch it all. Um, and I know also that psychotherapy and 12-step groups had some limitations. And so it was a combination of the two that really led to the miracle, like the miracle of finding freedom. Um, it was the paradox of the both and that had the answer. So there is a lot more in this podcast. There's some really sweet things about um, how we remind ourselves every day with spiritual scripture and poems and things like that. And I'm sure there's a lot that's going to land for you. And we want to hear about it. We want to have these conversations with you. So we invite you to come to the Ram Dass Soul Pod Fellowships that we host every other week. Um, to get the invitations, go to ramdas.org slash fellowship and sign up. And again, a really big thank you to our incredible team for digging in and finding such great content. It takes so many people and so much time to bring you just one of these episodes. And we have 21 other podcasts that we do on a biweekly basis. Um, and we can't do it without donations. We can't do it without sponsorship. Um, so with that, as I've mentioned before, I am a really big proponent of plant as allies. It's a big part of my work, everything from consciousness to stress reduction to energy to sleep. Um, and one of the things that plants can do is they can help balance focus and energy helps us be able to consistently create in the world. And that balance can be tricky, you know, too little energy and we can feel unmotivated, too much energy and we might feel amped up, sort of like bouncing off walls. And so I've mentioned this drink in the past that has really helped me. Um, it's called Magic Mind and it in contains some really, just really amazing plants. And one is uh, my favorite Ayurvedic herb. It's known as Brahmi, also known as Bacopa. And it contains something called nootropics. And nootropics, if you don't know, they're a class of substance that can boost brain performance. So it enhances things like thinking and learning and memory. Uh, Brahmi is really great at that balance of finding relaxation and focus, what we sometimes call flow state. And that's just one of the ingredients in this little drink. Um, Magic Mind has really helped me. I drink it in eight ounces of water in the morning. And it's also helped others I recommended it to. So the Magic Mind team has created or extended this great offer to you all. You can get 50% off your subscription if you order in the next 10 days. You just go to magicmind.co slash Ramdas and use Ramdas as your code during checkout. That's magicmind.co slash Ramdas. And we hope you enjoy that little energetic boost. And we hope you are really well nourished by today's episode and the teachings. As always, whatever good may come from it, may it benefit you in your daily life and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. So here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings.
Well, we're seeing um, today a lot of um, a variety of different methods and techniques. You heard some among other people. We've practiced a series of them. You take any single one of these, I mean, you take a mantra like Gate Gate or Sri Ram Jaram, one of the mantras in your book, or any mantra you happen to want to work with, and try just taking it and letting it permeate your daily life a little bit more. It's a device for centering, it's a device for quieting, it's a device for perspective giving about life, and uh, we'll do more of that tomorrow. The singing, which we'll do a little more in a few minutes, is another device, and I often, I mean, it's gotten so that I'm less likely to listen to the radio now in the automobile than to just be singing some kind of a kirtan or some kind of a song, and uh, just driving along, trying to keep these two levels going, not even trying, just doing it, just doing it. And then when I read you Ananda Mai Ma, those two quotes, you could see how deeply you could just work with those. And in a way, that process of reflection and study around little shlokas or quotes or, or chapters or something, or little storylines, is, um, is extremely useful, extremely useful. And you can surround yourself with just these little books of the teachings of so-and-so or quotes or something. They've got them, there's lots of them now. And, uh, or the, what the Buddha said, or the sayings of Christ, or Rumi, or Kabir, or whatever. And you just have them around like old friends. And you begin to find out that these, that once you acknowledge that you are on a journey into a spiritual awareness and perspective about life, then when you say, who will I hang out with that will help me? All of them are not alive at this moment, nor are all of them dead. There are both. So you listen to hear who you work with, but you can surround yourself with these little books, which I do. I always have a few of them in my bag or in the car or something, and at a red light, I just open, read a little shloka, and then let it work on me. A shloka is maybe three or four lines, and then just let it work on me while I'm driving along. You know. And... Uh, it's like fortune cookies. Except we found out last night. I said to the man who gave us, I said, are they all positive? He says, yes. He says, it's good fortune. What do you expect? It's a, for a good fortune cookie. <laughs> Got to be positive. I thought one would say, you're going to die from the food you just ate. Or something like that. <laughs> And uh, then just in these little groups, you began to see what it is to be with living satsang as opposed to books. I mean, here you were with a group of people who are selected by why they wanted to be here today, and then they're exploring the practices they're using. And you begin to f appreciate the value of comparing maps along the way in the journey, seeing who's where. And sometimes you can find those people and sometimes you can't. And uh, as you need them more, you start to be tuned to those variables in other people. Instead of being attracted to them because of something else, you're attracted because there's somebody that would be nice to spend time with around the journey. And the thing that I find 
is that many people have a hard time getting into it with that other person about spiritual work because it's sort of not a socially easy thing. You sort of laugh and kid and it's hard to really go in. And that's what was such fun about Israel for me because everybody sits down and immediately goes in. Immediately. Well, now, what did you think of what the spies did in Israel in 2000, you know, 2000 years ago? And everybody's in. And I like that, that it was acceptable social policy to go in. And very often you can form groups where there is a conscious intention to use the process of the group to awaken. That's a very interesting kind of group to form. You form groups around bowling, around your children. You form groups around mahjong or crocheting. You find groups around mountain climbing or uh, cooking together, having a meal uh, around athletic events. It's interesting to form a group around becoming conscious. And then you sit down and say, well, how will we do it? And then everybody throws in their ideas and you practice different things. Like I have a group of wonderful people in this area. And every time we meet once a month, and when we meet, there's about eight of us, and each night a person shares their practice with other people and sort of takes them into it and explores it, and then we discuss it, and then we meditate together. And it's as simple as that. And it's a very, it's been going on for a year and a half now. And it's, uh, it, it tastes good. It feels good. It feels like a useful device. But it takes an initiative. It takes a willingness to say, my life has a significant component of awakening. And I would like to start to select out of the universe I'm in those things that can help me awaken. I mean, I, as I've kidded about, I grew up in a, in a family where, if, where money and power were very valued. And it's become a deep, deep uh, habit in my mind. And it's been very delicate to extricate myself from it. And I've kidded about it. If I'm in a room with five people I, and one person's rich, I can see God in four people. And then the rich person. And I, I would like not to, but I don't have any choice. It's like... Uh, it just takes me. And I say, well, it's for the good of Seva or something like that. But basically, it's because it's, uh, it's an attachment. And I'm working with it. And I'm getting to the point now where it's more exciting to be with somebody that is a spiritual mensch, you know, a real person spiritually, than to be with even a rich person, believe it or not. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I know you'll find that hard to believe, but... <laughs> we have a few minutes for some questions. Uh, a rich spiritual person. <laughs> a, rich <laughs> a rich spiritual person. You'll never know why you're attracted. You're absolutely right. Don't. <laughs> he said, I, uh, he asked me a few years ago, what's your leading edge? What are you working on? And I s looked very serious. And I said, not having to entertain. How am I doing on that? 
Some of you may have seen in the June Focus magazine here in the Bay Area, there's an article about me in which it says, is he for real? I have no idea. You know, I'd be the last to know. I feel my intention is much less to entertain and my intention is much more to be collaborative with my fellow beings around a journey. You know, I really don't see, I don't see them, I see us. And you don't have to entertain us, you entertain them. It's a little different. So I feel more like we're together, exploring something together. And it's, I'm so used to trying to gauge the energies of an audience and all that stuff and keep everybody, you know, like this, which is an entertainer shtick in a way, that it's, it's uh, delicate to deal with stuff that takes longer than you'd like and that you can feel people getting agitated and I'm not good at tolerance for rejection. So uh, I'm still working with it, as you can hear. Yes, I would like to talk about the fundamentalist rise in the world, reasons and repercussions. Use it there. I've got to get into my fundamentalist mode to answer the question. <laughs> mm. uh, I sense that as, um, as the, this is a complex uh, determinant situation, but as the information age, allows us to be aware of the destabilization of the social structures of the world as they're going through changes. That fear, that chaos, potential chaos, awakens, that fear generates attempting to clutch at something in order to clutch good to ward off evil. And that seems to me to be one of the real root causes of the rise of fundamentalism. That um, when I look in the United States back in the 60s, I would say that the, the um, starting with the 50s, actually, as expressed very uh, directly by the, the beat, beat generation, the beat poets and so on, was a real uh, focusing on individuality as opposed to group or a common good consciousness. And I think we in the 60s, and I was part of something there, were partly responsible. We were coming out of a sense of strong social coercion as to how you would think to be part of the group. And there was a rise of, the, of individualism not only in the United States, but it's been spreading a lot. Because before that, people were more focused on what is my responsibility rather than what is my right. And individualism led into rights, individual rights. Now the beauty of it is that that empowerment that came to the individual was involved with the civil rights movement, it was involved with the sexual freedom movement, it was involved with the anti-Vietnam movement, it was involved with the women's movement, it was involved with the sexual freedom movement. I mean, it was a whole set of things that it was involved with. But what... And then 
that individualism started to get institutionalized, well, in the 60s, when that started to get stronger and stronger, it was, it implied a realignment of the power structures. It started to empower people so that they were not part of a vertical, uh, uh, a vertical power structure. And um, people that had a vested interest in how it was started to get frightened. They really started to get frightened because it looked like chaos and anarchy. I mean, it looked like that's what was coming. And I now see that the naivete with which we embraced our idealism fed the fundamentalist and right-wing movement in the United States. I accept that I have as much responsibility as other people do for creating that. And what's interesting to me now in the 90s is that as there is a lot going on and there's a destabilizing, but it is possible that we won't be so naive this time, that we won't think that if we saw that love conquers fear, everybody will see it just because we saw it and it's so powerful. That's what happened to the 60s. What happened to us was so strong, we just assumed everybody would fall before it. But they didn't. They got frightened and they pushed against it. And we had this pendulum swing that's gone on for 20 years in our culture. And um, my sense is now we might be, it, this is a very complicated answer because um, in my dealings, my, my role as a, as a part of a participatory democracy, I'm very concerned that uh, the president and his staff act out of the deepest wisdom and compassion. I would like that, all right? And um, I, was, I wanted to be very supportive of the administration, and I really wanted to be, and I had to deal with uh, Bill Clinton's centrist positions, and I was more of a liberal, so it was harder for me. And I saw that people elect somebody with a projection that that person is who they would like them to be, and then when they start to be who they are, they get discouraged. And I said, I'm not going to get discouraged because I can see that a centrist position, this is a hard one, a centrist position, that at this point in the way the world game is, is a falling, either everybody goes or nobody goes. You can't polarize it again. You can't have an us and them. It's got to keep embracing people, embracing people. And, um, and I saw that that would demand a much more centrism than I was used to or wanted from a democratic president and so on. Now, um, in the same way with fundamentalism, there's a way of um, feeling the fear-generated uh, control and, and action of a fundamentalist group and then going like that against them. Or it is possible for us as conscious and compassionate people to define limits and push against the limit and de define the limit and at the same moment keep our hearts open to these beings. It's, it's an interesting nature of the dynamics of change in a, in a social system. That the ability to say no to somebody without closing your heart, 
I mean, the fundamentalist movement represents, um, it would oppose, it would probably punish somebody like me if it had its choice. I am a threat to the, uh, that system. And I've really heard um, Gandhi, who dealt with that a great deal, saying, you do what you do, but you never put another person out of your heart. And what that means and how you do it, how you do it. So, uh, like when I do a radio show in New Orleans or something like that, there'll be a fundamentalist that'll call me and lay into me for not being, you know, not following the way. And what I'll do is, to the extent that I can listen, like we've just been talking, listening my way into that person's pain and fear and what it is they need, then I can often respond with my love of Christ as a, in terms of stories that help me understand compassion, come back with the essence of what it is that he wants to hold on to instead of getting into the form of the difference. And I feel that is a challenge to, to me, to keep finding the common ground, if you will. It was like, because um, I feel that if we end up polarizing again, I think we all lose. I don't think we have that option. I don't think we really have that option. And the art form, um, when I was in um, Ireland, the conference in Ireland was called... Um, uh, indigenous peoples, the environment, and spirituality. Okay? Now, when you think about that, those are three different groups. They're three different social action groups, political action groups, basically. Uh, maybe spirituals are so clearly, but certainly indigenous peoples is and environment is. And many of us are involved in all of those. But the coming together of them all is very interesting. Because each of them holds to their agenda in a way that makes them see other groups only in relation to how they can further their own agenda. And it was interesting to, I was trying to work with a D.H. Lawrence quote in my lecture there, which said, any unity that, is, uh, that we arrive at through love or violence or coercion from outside won't work. That the way in which we will experience an appreciation of diversity, the way we'll come into an honoring of diversity is by recognizing our unity behind our diversity and then honoring our diversity. It can't work from the environmentalists meeting the indigenous peoples. Behind every indigenous person is another being. Behind every environmentalist is another being. When we meet as beings, then we can say, well, what is your unique way of expressing your dharma? What is your unique way of manifesting in the world to relieve suffering? And you say, well, I really feel that the imminence of ecological, disaster, environmental disaster is what demands my attention. And someone else says, look, I am part of an impressed indigenous people, and we have some wisdom to share with the world, and you're not listening, and we're going to demand you listen. And that's my agenda. Now, I can honor both of those agendas. 
The question is, could we hear behind all of our agendas in order to hear that we are fellow human beings and then go from there out into our diversity? And that's the issue we come to in, in all of the, the polarizations in the culture. So when I look at, I mean, I can get very scared by the, the expansionist nature of Islam and the idea of the Islamic fundamentalism and the idea of the jihad. I can certainly, I mean, I can do this time and again with the Christian fundamentalists, with the Orthodox Jews. I could feel that same thing. Um, uh, and um, my job is to work on myself so I experience the planet which we're us and then honor the diversity and the right of that person to do what they want, but when they start to do something that affects me or another person's right, then I have to say no, but then I have to work to say no without closing my heart. That's the sequence I go through. Okay. Questions? There are stages in which one, you've just tasted of another plane of consciousness and you're so eager to get there and to stabilize and to make it yours that you push against where you were. You push it under, you push it away. It's called the renunciate path. Do you hear what, I, what I'm saying? And um, as I've kidded about in the past, I pursued that path for a number of years and I ended up what I call a horny celibate, which was somebody not doing something, which is what we're talking about, about it's still lurking in there. You haven't finished with it. That's entertainment. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the sequence of events, what often happens is that when you grab at the high and push away the low, push away the thing that brings you down or catches you or denies it or tries to not notice it, it doesn't work. It'll get you high, but it won't free you. You'll get high, but you'll come down again because that stuff's still real. The, finally, two things can happen. One is you start to get a little stabilized in these uh, different states of consciousness, and then you turn around in order to get free of the aversions, and you start to let the aversion arise, and you notice it. You bring mindfulness to bear around it as it starts to come up. The other is where you're still caught and you don't have much mindfulness, but you're starting to do a practice, which is like what could be called karma yoga. You're doing a practice of taking the stuff of your life and using it to get free. It's, it's a practice you can start from anywhere. Like you get angry, feel the anger. I'm really angry. And then you just sit with it. And you notice it all. You notice the endocrine rush. You notice all the phenomena in it. You notice there's a tendency at first to want to push it away because it isn't spiritual. I don't want that anger. But after a while, I think you, um, the strategy more is to bring it into clear mindfulness, watch it be, identify a little more with the witness, and let the thing slowly change. I think the tricky thing is for us to integrate psychodynamic techniques and spiritual techniques. 
Psychodynamic technique says, let's work it out. Spiritual technique says, let's get on with it. Let's leave it behind. If you do either one of them to, to an extreme, you lose it. Hear that one? That's interesting. It's really the balance of them. Like I'll do meditation and I'll get into great states and stuff will come up and I'll clean away stuff and then I'll see there's other psychodynamics that just aren't being touched at all by the practice because I'm not strong enough or they're too powerful. And there'll be a right moment where I'll go to a therapist or somebody to, to work with that stuff and bring it up and, and skim the soup of what's skimmable. I'm not going to get free of everything because I'm a neurotic and I'll always be a neurotic, but I get rid of some stuff and then once I've noticed that, I go then back into my practices again or I keep that relationship going. So uh, I think that the realization that pushing something away to get high doesn't free you is a very important realization. And everything follows from that. Because when I realized that, then I had to turn around and look at what brought me down as my curriculum. I started to see that what I wanted to deny, what I pushed against, what I didn't like, was just the stuff through which I would get free. By coming to it, working with that fire, quieting, centering, being mindful of it, letting it change, being patient if it doesn't change, but not belaboring it any more than I have to. Not going into it, like what's its history, all that stuff, unless I really have to do that finally. All right. Is that dealing at all with the question? I was, um, I was thinking a lot about ritual recently when I was giving, preparing for that Huxley lecture because I was comparing Brave New World and Island. And um, in Island, which was his, uh, Aldous's last uh, novel, he describes uh, as reasonable a society as he can, the potential of a reasonable society. And he, he designs it around various initiatory rites, rituals of change. And so that with, uh, in his world, uh, in island world, um, the uh, children grow up in a certain uh, very spacious, conscious way, but still supported in becoming somebody and becoming effective and getting their act together, just like real people. And then at around 16, they have a ritual that puts all that into context. They go through a, a trial of climbing down a mountain and then they go and they take the moksha medicine, which is a psychedelic basically. And they get to see the space in which their whole life has been existing. And that ritual starts the next stage of their life. I could say that the rituals, when a group gets together, the ritual of truth, the ritual of circle sharing, of going around the circle, and each person going for their deepest truth in that moment around whatever topic it is that the group's doing, those two rituals alone are extraordinary. And what I have found in groups is that any ritual you create at the first works wonderfully, and then everybody figures out how to socialize it or go to sleep in the midst of it and have it not work. And I don't think that there are, I mean, that's what the whole uh, rave thing is about. It's a ritual for people to move into a different relationship with other human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think a Grateful Dead dance is a ritual. 
it's a very deep, profound ritual. I mean, I think it's, it's one of the longest lasting new religions in the society. And I think it's a very powerful religion in the sense that it gives people a ritual in which it is safe for them to touch certain kinds of feelings inside themselves. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. I don't have much more. Yes. Well, addictions are very strong attachments. They're attachments in which there isn't, you don't experience that there's any space for change. It feels totally real to you. It feels as if that path is the only path for you. That may be rooted in biochemistry, it might be rooted in social conditions, it might be rooted in psychological conditions, it might be rooted in karma. I mean, it's any number of possibilities why a person gets into an addictive way of thinking or behaving. And it's very difficult for someone that doesn't think there's any space to even hear the potential that there is space. And depending on the intensity of the addiction, there are different methods that work. For example, with alcoholism, AA works. Having someone else who had the same depth of addiction you did share with you the way they are no longer addicted reinforces your sense of the possibility that you can get out of it. Now, that doesn't work so well in heroin addiction. It doesn't, I mean, each addiction has its own uh, depth of physiological rootedness and it has its own uh, capacity to change. I mean, overeating is resistant or not resistant to change. The difficulty from my point of view is the, the tendency of people in this culture to define themselves in terms of their pathology, in terms of addiction, in terms of childhood experiences, in terms of lack of something terms of some problem, some neurosis. And actually, in a society where family and extended structures are breaking down and a lot of people feel very isolated, it's turning out that many people are starting to find a community with people of a fellow with the same pathology. Now, that's very useful at a certain stage. One of the potential problems of that is that it keeps reinforcing your definition of yourself as identified with the addiction, the aversion or the attachment. And the issue is, how do you use the support of a group to help you awaken out of an identity? And then, in a way, well, how do you stay in the group or not when the group was originally defined around that identity? Do you hear the problem? And I think this is a real problem for self-help addiction groups for them to work with. Because ultimately, like, um, it's true. I mean, if you're, if you're a diabetic and you take insulin, you'd say, well, I'm a diabetic and I will probably always be a diabetic and I will take insulin. But you don't usually define yourself that strongly in terms of being a diabetic. It's also, it's something you're also doing, like you're wearing pink or whatever, you know, it's just a thing. And I, uh, I'm reticent because what I've watched in myself is that as my spiritual practices have gone deeper, 
the nature of any definition has kept dissolving, keeps dissolving, until I would say, I don't have any definition of who I am. Somebody said, who are you? I don't know. And I'm not being facetious. I just don't, I'm not busy. I'm a mother. I'm a driver. I'm an American. I'm a Jew. You know, I'm whatever. Yeah, I, I'm just not busy doing that anymore. And people keep coming forward and say, well, you're a one of us. Won't you join with us? And I'd say, I've got to look and see whether I can join in a way of honoring that I am one of us without being trapped by it. And that's the interesting issue about working to get rid of an addiction, to working with an addiction. So um, I think that from a spiritual point of view, they are strong attachments. And ultimately, I would treat them the same way I would treat attachments. I would say, the, I mean, the hardest thing I'd say is meditate. I'd say, follow your breath and your addiction will be forced to the surface and it will go away. You say, how can following my breath deal with an addiction like that? I'd say, that thought is just another thought. Go back to your breath. <laughs> Have you hear that? So, yeah. I mean, there's a point where each thing says, I'm an addiction. I'm real. You know, I'm, I'm abuse. This is real. I'm an abused person. I'm an abused person. I'm an abused person. It is true. You are an abused person. The question is, is it going to liberate you to keep holding on to that identity? I, I think that you have a good reason to demand social equity and justice and to use a label to do that. But if you're going to get trapped in it, everybody loses. If you end up being an abused child for the rest of your life, I think you lost. And I think you create so much suffering of blame of other people for being part of that which abused you, I think you keep creating suffering with other people too. So, I mean, I've, I'm, I think we're learning, and that's what I was talking to the indigenous people about and the environmentalists, how to be what you need to be in the world without getting so identified with it you create suffering through your identification with it. That, to me, is the intriguing issue, the really intriguing issue. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.